This teaching is brought to you by Christian Family Church International. Let's pray before I do. Let me say this. I want to thank Apostle Theo and Dr. Bev for the opportunity of ministering to you tonight um, on this third part in the series of supernatural relationships, and I believe that it really is going to bless you. So let's just pray. Father, we come before you this evening in the wonderful name of Jesus. Thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Lord, my prayer is simple tonight, that where there is not financial unity within the homes of the families present here in church or watching online tonight, that you would restore that, Lord, that you would bring through the wisdom and the counsel of your word, that you would bring them into a place of financial unity. That is my prayer, and everyone who agreed said, praise the Lord. Okay, so I'm part three in Extraordinary Relationships, and you would have noticed in this four-part series, this is the penultimate one, there's one more coming, you would have noticed that this doesn't predominantly focus on relationships with the Lord, it really does focus on extraordinary relationships amongst ourselves with one another. And tonight is no different. Although I'll be teaching on finances tonight, or should I say preaching slash teaching on finances tonight, as I mentioned in my prayer, my ultimate goal is to bring financial unity into the home and to explain how that happens. Studies up until recently, and if you do marriage counseling, I'll tell you, have revealed that 99% of the reasons why people get divorced is predominantly because it's a communications issue. And for years, I believed that. Because if you, can, if you can effectively communicate, you can really resolve anything. But as they began to research and do more surveys, they realized that 99% of the communication issues that cause people to get divorced has everything to do with financial situations within the family within the husband and wife. So most divorces, one can say, hand on heart, begin because there is no financial unity within the home. And so tonight's message is dedicated to this. And it's not really an easy solution. It's not a case of reading your Bible and you get it fixed because there's different opinions. I mean, for example, my wife and I grew up in completely different, not neighborhoods, but different backgrounds. I mean, my dad worked. He was the provider of my home. My mom was a battle axe. She... Um, she was just a different kind of woman, and I've regaled the management team and friends of mine with stories of my mother. She's become kind of famous slash infamous. But my dad was the provider of my home. He was old school. My mother, my mother was the one that protected the money. My mother grew up under the tables while her mother used to gamble in and around Jewel Street. That was, her mother was a professional, that's all she did. So my mother grew up under gambling tables. And as a result of that, she learned from her mother to live an extremely frugal life. My mom, I promise you, my mom could split a lamb chop into four pieces, no problem. My mother. I, you know what? She, it was all smoke and mirrors with her. And you, me and Christine have been together since I was 13 and she was 12. So she will attest to this. My mother used to bamboozle us. She used to buy two lamb chops that would feed eight people. She just was careful. She'd never buy a loin chop, Pastor Johnny, because you can't split a loin chop. You know, a loin chop's got a nice piece of meat with fat on it. The bride chops, however, if ever you've had a bride chop, I mean, you can divide that thing into four. My mom was so frugal, she measured out how we would have dinner, practically with a vernier and a scale, because she was on way less. There was, in my house, I promise you, as God is my witness, I never woke up the next day ever with leftovers. Not a pea. I mean, my mother was frugal. You know what she used to do for me and my brother for Christmas? She would go to the cheap store, it was called the Penguin in Durban. 
used to get t-shirts for like 55 cents back then, white t-shirts. Then she would make the trouble of going to the gotcha factory store and buying the, buy these iron-on decals. She wouldn't, she wouldn't save a penny. I promise you, she'd go buy these white t-shirts and then she'd iron on these decals without after three washes would come off anyway. But as long as when we open our presents on Christmas, <laughs> I've, got, I've got island style t-shirts. And my friends would look at it and think, hey, you know, something's up with that t-shirt. It's not, that, that's a, and then a few days later, after a couple of washes, the, the thing would come off, you know? I mean, I remember going to Stan at six. I went from, from Toddy Primary to Kingsway High School. Now, back in my day when I was in school, we used to wear safari suits. We used to call it a suffering suit because it was 99.9% it was polyester and 1% cotton. And the percentage cotton was really just on the stitching and the label on the inside. It was like wearing a checkers bag. My mom was so frugal, and I'm not exaggerating, not a word of a lie. My mother figured, listen, this kid's going to be in this school for five years. I've got to get him a size that's going to last him until matric because I'm not buying twice. Not a word of a lie. So she bought me this lime green. Well, let me not say, it started off lime green. After a couple of washes, it just became like a, a light green. She bought me this light green safari suit that when I put the shorts on, <laughs> and you was, when I was in school, I promise you I had Wednesday legs. Wednesday going to break. That's how thin they were. So I wore the safari suit pants. If I just held, if I just, it came down here. Not only that, <laughs> the safari suit, because the shirt you don't tuck in would be down here. So in order to make my legs look more impressive, I'd have to roll up. I'd roll up a safari suit. The problem is, as I rolled up a safari suit, the shorts would come out like this. <laughs> I thought, you can see I'm fine, I'm just a bit scarred. And so, this, and so the shorts would come out like this, so eventually I'd roll up, hey? Huh? Yeah, the pockets would stick out because the white pockets are deeper than the length of the shorts. So they would stick out like this. And then eventually start walk around, looked like I was wearing a skirt, but I just couldn't. And not a word of a lie, my safari suit lasted me from standard six all the way through to matric. And even then it didn't fit me properly. So, so this, is the kind, this is the kind of environment that, 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 I, that I grew up in. I have one more story about my mom, which is just ridiculous. Um, Brandon Stickers. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, so my dad, at one, my mom was extremely frugal. And I'm, talk, and I'm telling you this because I'm trying to give you a picture of what my financial upbringing was like. We, we lived just, just on the breadline. My dad would work a lot of, my dad would work hard and do extra overtime. Uh, my mom never worked. She would do kind of little promotions here and there. But my dad was the provider. My mom managed the money. And um, my dad got fired at one point, I remember. And so he was completely distraught. He didn't know what he was going to do until he came home that night. I'll never forget, my mom lifted the mattress and she had saved 10,000 rand. Now, back then in the 80s, back, that was a, and I remember sitting there thinking, you could have got me a smaller safari suit. <laughs> you could have got me a smaller safari suit. You know? <laughs> I thought, but anyway, that my dad took that money and then began a business. But I promise you, to say that my mom was tight, I promise you, not a buffalo, nor a cheetah, not even Nelson Mandela ever left the clutches without tears running down, running down his face. 
So now with Christine and her mom was completely different. Her mom was a self-made woman. She was one of the most successful estate agents in Amanzim Toti. I used to love going to their house because there was always plenty of everything. There was always leftovers. There was always biscuits in the cupboard. There was always ham and pea soup. And I'd come in there like a tornado and I would, I would clean up. I would clean up. I would leave and she'd get in the neck from her mother. That boyfriend of yours, does he not stop eating? But I mean, I was, I was going through a growth spurt, okay? So, 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 so Christine always had, she always had the newest bedding. I mean, so, I promise you, you know what my bed looked like? It was a mattress on the floor. That was my bed. It was a mattress on the floor. And I'll never forget, I had a leopard skin duvet from the time I can remember until I matriculated. And I know my mom's listening to me, and I've told these stories before in her company, and she gets extremely embarrassed, and she says, boy, stop lying, stop lying. And then she laughs because she knows it's the truth. So, so I don't know what your story looks like, but how you as married couples grew up. But you know, that does formulate an opinion of how you manage finances. And to this day, I am extremely, extremely frugal. I don't, I, don't think my, I don't think I'm a stingy person, but one would think because my mom controlled the money that I would leave that up to Pastor Christine. But you, you know, I've always said my wife doesn't have filters. If we walk into a mall, I like that, I like that, I like that, I like that, I like that. How many of your wives are like that? So before we go into a mall, again, the Lord's my witness. I grab her, I look into her eyes, and I say, babe, Filters. Filters which means pick something you like. You can't like everything. She says, but I do. I said, but that's confusing for us men because we don't know what to buy and what to spend. So we grew up in completely opposite ends of the spectrum. So needless to say, when we got married, there wasn't a lot of financial unity within our home. We had been brought up in different environments. And I'm saying this to say this to you today. Perhaps maybe one of the source reasons why there is so much difference and perhaps arguments on the way money matters should be conducted in your house is simply because of your upbringing. Can I get an amen? Now, that doesn't mean we continue living like that because ultimately the goal is to become financially unified within your church. And I'm going to give you some practical things tonight that I believe will help you. Certainly something that helped me when me and my wife were going through marriage counseling with Pastor Mark and Colleen Aikenhead many, many years ago, they gave me one piece of advice that I promise you solved 90% of the financial differences that we had when we came into marriage. How many of you want to know what that counsel is? I'll tell you a bit later. I will get to it, and if I don't get to it, just remind me, okay? So needless to say, when Christine and I got married, we were not necessarily in financial unity. Now, before I get into the answer of that question, I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke. We're going to go to some scripture now. You know this portion of scripture, but I want to share some insights, to, insights with you this evening because I really believe I'm going to be focusing on two principles of multiplication. Two principles of multiplication that when grasped and if grasped will change the way married couples view money and will help in achieving financial unity within your home. So we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 9, verses 12 through 14, and I really hope you have your Bibles with you, because you're going to want to write these two principles next to this, if you've got any space left for notes, because I'm sure you've got copious notes regarding this portion of Scripture. So in Luke 9, verses 12, it says, when the day began to wear away, I love the way the translation puts it, when the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, to Jesus, Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding town's country and lodge and get provisions. 
for we are in a deserted place here, duh, like Jesus didn't know any of this. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Imagine flipping that coin on them. Essentially saying, why are you making this my problem? You solve it. Today the church goes to Jesus for so many things and Jesus says, why are you making this my problem? You solve it. We shouldn't be going to Jesus to solve the problems of the poor. He's given the church to solve the problems of the poor. And this was a strong message from Christ himself to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is his body. That's what this is here. You can almost see the 12 disciples, the leadership of the church in that day, or the church that would be coming to Jesus and saying, we've got a problem. We've got a whole bunch of people here that don't have provision. Can you fix it? And Jesus says, why are you making this my problem? You fix it. It is the church's responsibility. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all these people. Can you imagine? Now it was affecting their pockets. So now they were saying, listen, I don't, I don't have the bucks for this. For there were about 5,000 men. Now we know as a result of a verse in Matthew chapter 14, verse 21, clarifies the amount of people in this crowd. And here it says, now those who had, now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So what we had here was really 5,000 families. And theologians agree that that could have been anything between 20 to 25,000 people. The point I'm trying to make as I say this is, and many of you know it, is that perhaps this is a slightly bigger miracle than what we originally thought it was. Just a little bit bigger to feed 20 to 25,000 people. Now, um, if, you, if you've known me for any extended period of time, you'll know that I read the Bible in technicolor. What I love to do about Scripture is I love to insert myself into Scripture because it helps me assess how would I have dealt with the situation. I, I just get more from it. It teaches me more. So I don't read a book about people. I put myself in that position. And I mean, by and large, I'm generally the Peter guy. You know, I'm really the guy that chops ears off. I make the mess. Jesus had to fix it. I'm the kind of guy that Jesus has to say, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you? I'm the Peter guy. I mean, I would figure, I would figure Clive is most probably a Mark kind of guy. Although Mark, Mark only met Jesus a bit later. Clive's kind of, the, he's the action guy, you know? Everything happens. I mean, if you read the book of Mark, there's more suddenlies in the book of Mark than any other gospel. Clive's a suddenly kind of guy. So, so Clive would be the Mark guy. Pastor Greg, he would be John. I mean, we all know, super saved Pastor Greg, and I can speak about him because he's not yet tonight, but um, chances are he's watching online. But Pastor Greg's the guy that's got his head on the chest of Jesus, you know. He's just, Pastor Greg's this guy, prays more than anybody, reads more than anybody else. He's just more composed than anybody else. So Pastor Greg's that guy. So when I read the scriptures, I put myself in. So as I read this account, I pick up for myself which of those disciples would I have been, and I pretty much settled on the fact that, that, that I would have been Peter. So as we go through this, I wonder who you would be. So you decide who you're going to be in the story and see what the Lord and what the Word reveals concerning you. So, so going back to chapter 9 and verse 12, the first scripture, again, I'm going to embellish this with a bit of with a bit of opinion that's based upon sound teaching and sound scripture. So it says over here in Luke chapter 9 verse 12, when the day began to wear away. Now in Greek, I studied that out. And in Greek, what it actually means is when the day began to wear away. So this is almost like the guest speaker 
who came to town who just wouldn't quit. <laughs> so Jesus began in the morning. People didn't bring lunch with them except one kid who popped out for a two-piece meal and five loaves. Nobody brought food with them. They thought they were going to be there for a morning service. And so Jesus began in the morning, and then he went into the afternoon, and then he went into the evening. This is the preacher that came that just wouldn't stop preaching and just carried on and on and on and on. And I love how this, how this whole story plays, plays out. So here, as I mentioned earlier on, this is where I relate to Peter. So how would I have responded to an all-day sermon? Listen, I know how I've responded in the past to an hour and 30-minute sermon preached by Apostle Theo in the early days when I had to get to work at 5 a.m. the next morning. I used to think, Pastor Theo, I know you're watching this and I love you, but after the 50-minute mark, I began to think, can we please? I mean, Pastor Theo's never a guy that prepares you and says, I'm about to land this plane. He's not that guy. So you left wondering, how high am I still flying? How many of you know what I'm talking about? For those of you that have been in the church for 30 years, let me tell you, Pastor Theo got his second wind sometimes at 90 minutes, eh, Pastor Jen? So now I put myself in this position, and I wonder, if Jesus started teaching in the morning and I'm in the afternoon, I would have like shimmied up to Mark. Okay, Mark wasn't there. Bear with me. I would have shimmied up to John. I would have shimmied up to Matthew. And I would have said to them, listen, guys, I'm about to digest my colon. <laughs> you know, the parable makes it all about the crowds, but we forget that the disciples were the ones carrying the message. So I don't know whether it was the crowds or whether it was the disciples. Because if I'm Peter, I'm scroll. I'd go to Pastor Greg and I would, I would shimmy up to him and say, listen, if I don't eat in the next 18 seconds, I'm going to be dead. Not figuratively, literally, and this is not going to be a preaching sermon. This is going to have to be a, a resurrection sermon. What are we going to do? So, so then I, I would assume that the disciples then began to, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And the disciples would have said, listen, let's tell the master that the crowd's hungry. Because after all, he loves the people. <laughs> Play on his emotions. Let's, and John, who's now Pastor Greg, would have said, I like that. That's, because, I mean, Pastor Greg is so lean, he doesn't know whether he's got stomachache or backache. <laughs> I mean, he's just, Pastor Greg, Pastor Greg is like a digesting turbine, you know what I'm saying? He can't afford to go without a chicken wing, <laughs> let alone a whole meal until the evening. So here we have the disciples thinking, listen, what's going on? And so the disciples must have spoken amongst themselves and said, listen, we need to allocate a spokesman. Who are we choosing? I was Peter, because I mean, I would have said, John, head of Jesus, sweet man. So all 12 make their way up to Jesus, who's now preaching, <laughs> and the day is spent. I mean, the day is done. And Pastor Greg would shimmy up and, anyway, let's get back to Scripture and I'll get back to my story and my embellishment in a moment, okay? So how would I have responded to an all-day sermon? I think I've explained that. I would have deflected and used the people as my muscle to get Jesus and play on his, and play on his emotions to get him just to stop. 
enough. Because they said, listen, let's not go get food and come back. They said, he said, excuse these people so they can go buy and lodge somewhere else. I mean, that's how done they were. They can go and stay gone. <laughs> because the longer they stay, the longer, the longer you preach. Okay, so bear with me. So I would have I would deflected. So the inference from scripture is that they interrupted Jesus' preaching. That's the inference. So now the elected spokesman, who would have been perhaps John, Pastor Greg, he makes his appeal on behalf of the people in Luke chapter 9 and verse 13. And he says, and he says, and he says to Jesus, These people are hungry. And Jesus says to them, You. You solve this problem. Why are you coming to me to solve it? You give them something to eat. So I paraphrase this in my own words, and perhaps it must have gone something like this. Um, Jesus, Lord, Jesus, and the 12 are there, and John steps forward and says that people are, but forget me, but people are hungry. Well, Lord, and then Jesus says, well, you, you give them something to eat. So, so perhaps what they did was they went through the crowd because, I mean, I don't, the Bible doesn't tell us the kid came running up offering his streetwise two and five loaves. You know, he didn't. Chances are this kid had the common sense to say, this guy's anointed, but this is like an all-day thing. I'm just going to town quickly. And he came back and he had five loaves. And so the disciples most probably said to Jesus, listen, we've taken a walk through the crowd. No one had anything except this little boy. And I just want to be clear. This is John to Jesus. I want to be clear. Peter took it from him. <laughs> Peter confiscated this, but needless to say this, and he might have even taken, but he confiscated this meal, and so this is all we've got. We've got the streetwise two fish, not chicken. Streetwise two with five, with five loaves. And Luke, we pick up the story in verse 14. So then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50, and they did so, and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up at heaven, he blessed and broke them, or he blessed them and broke them and gave them. Can someone say he blessed them, he broke them, and he gave them? Who did he give them to? The multitudes? He gave them the broken pieces to his disciples. And he set them before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and 12 baskets of leftover fragments were taken up by them. Now, people interpret that different ways. I believe Jesus wanted a takeaway bag for one of each 12 disciples, or all 12 bags to the child, I don't know, that sowed his last meal or his streetwise two and five rolls. But I want to draw your attention to this verse. He blessed them and broke them and gave them. Luke chapter 9 and verse 16. I mean, can you imagine? watching this and observing this. So Jesus grabs the only meal that they could muster from 20 to 25,000 people, and he gives thanks, and he breaks it, and he gives it into John and my hand. What would be going through my mind at that point in time? Because all I've got is half a broken small little loaf. Now, now loaf, a Jewish loaf is not a big thing. It's a small little, it's like a small little thing like this. If that was me and Jesus had given that to me and said to me, now give it to the people, the first thing I would have thought is, do you want to pray a little more? Seriously, he gave me half a loaf and he says, now feed, he gave it to the 12 disciples, now feed 20,000 people. I'm sure Jesus would have stared me down 
at which point I would have got the message, listen, something's about to happen here. But then further to that, I would have been the guy, because the people sat in rows of, sat in groups of 50s, the first group I went to, I would have reached, I would have, and I would have said, take a small piece. <laughs> you only, you only allow, no biting. Take a small piece. What's wrong with you? This half a loaf has got to go. That would have been, that would have been my, that my take. You know, and sometimes we're exactly like that with our finances. You know, the Lord has blessed us and given it to us, and he wants us to give, and we just want to give just a little bit. So that would have been, that would have been my response. I'm not saying that was the disciples' response, but that would have been my response. So what I want you to notice about Luke chapter 9 and verse 16, and now we get into the principles. He blessed them and broke them and gave them. The miracle, you want to write this down, the miracle did not happen in the master's hands. The miracle happened in the disciples' hands. The multiplication of that bread, can you imagine? Now, I'm Peter, take a small piece. <laughs> As I got towards the end and my small little half a loaf that Jesus had broken or the piece had broken, all of a sudden, this thing just explodes again. And all of a sudden, it just multiplies again. At which point now I become bold because I obeyed the Lord and all I've, and I've begun to see what, what the Lord can do. The miracle took place in the disciples' hands and not in Jesus' hands. So here we have these two principles of multiplication or two principles you need to focus on in order to achieve financial unity within your home. Listen very carefully. The first thing is that it had to be blessed before it could be multiplied. It had to be blessed before it can be multiplied. Now I ask you, if they had not taken the little they had to Jesus and he blessed them, would there have been multiplication? Would there have been a miracle of provision? No. And this is where the principle of the tithe comes in. Because if you want the rest of what God has given you to be blessed, and Pastor Theo has taught on this extensively, when you return the tithe to the Lord, the rest is blessed. So when you bring what you've got to God, God blesses it and everything else that the Lord, that you have, that God has given you remains blessed. And I'm so grateful at a very young age, when I was 12, 13 years old, my first tithe was 14 rand 90 cents. I earned 149 rand at, at um, wrapping presents at the hub. And that was the first tithe I ever gave. It was a difficult decision to make as a young man, but I'm so glad because the back of poverty was broken that day on my life. I saw, I saw, I saw a, a meme the other day, which was quite a, quite a few years ago, two guys sitting on a park bench. One's very wealthy, the one's very poor. It's a homeless guy. And he looks at the wealthy guy and he says, you know what, when I was rich, it was difficult to tithe. Now that I've got nothing, it's easy. <laughs> you don't want to get to that point where you've got nothing, where you then only enter into the covenant, where you then only enter into covenant with the Lord. So begin tithing so the rest can be blessed. You see, it had to be blessed before it could be multiplied. How do we ensure that what is ours is blessed by Jesus? And again, folks, simply put, is to return the tithe to the Lord. So as a, as a family, now you say to me, you might be here and say, Pastor Andre, I'm a lady. My husband's not born again. He's not a Christian. And he doesn't want to tithe. And he's the financial head of my home. What do I do? You submit to your husband. You submit to your husband. That's provision. But listen to me also very, very carefully. Listen to me very carefully. You don't use the fact that your husband doesn't come to church and the fact that you've never even brought up tithing with him as an excuse for you not to tithe because the Lord knows your heart. 
If you're in a position and you're, un, and you're married to someone who's not a Christian and doesn't understand the covenant, the financial covenant of tithing, it doesn't help you force it down his throat. It doesn't help you take him as the provider of the home and secretly, secretly give his money away to the church because I promise you now, it won't cause him to run to God. It'll cause him to run away from the Lord. So that is personally my advice to you. You are under your husband's authority. But if he gets saved, when he gets saved, the two of you need to discuss about coming. Now, I tithed since I was 13. My wife didn't know what tithing was until after we got married. But I'm so grateful for the woman that God gave me. Because when we stepped out in faith and began to tithe, even on our salaries after we got married, never once, never once has Christine ever said to me, maybe we should hold back the tithe this month. Never, ever, not once. And I'm so grateful that's a hurdle that I didn't need to climb. So that's the first principle. It has to be blessed before it can be multiplied. What is the second principle? It had to be given away before it could be multiplied. What if the disciples, after Jesus had broken the bread and returned it to them and given them their portion, and instead of them going down the rows and sowing and giving to those people, and rather decided to keep it for themselves, what would have been multiplied to them? Absolutely nothing, I believe. The miracle would have stopped in their hands. And you see, as a family, you need to understand that we live by seed, time, and harvest. It is a law that God instituted in the book of Genesis. As long as the earth remains, there will be seed, time, and harvest. It's a law that when we practice it, will always produce a harvest based upon the seed we sow. It's the way the world works. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. That scripture has to be read in conjunction with the law of seed, time, and harvest spoken about in Genesis. And so if anything, I hope this message drives you as married couples to realize that we live by sowing and reaping. If we're not sowing, we're not reaping. If you, schedule, if you do not sow in a season, you schedule, a, you schedule a harvestless season. And the only way to escape seasons, the Bible said, is when we give. When we give, we see it in the life of Isaac. Sow during famine, reaped a hundredfold return. You don't have to go through financial seasons in your life. Jesus died so that you could be removed from that. So as a family, so there's the, there's the second principle. It has to be given away before it can be multiplied. Now this goes to demonstrate how over and above our tithes and our offerings, we're to freely and generously give from what we have left. And this is called offerings. So getting back to me and Christine, and this has everything, folks, to do with financial unity. As a result of our different upbringings, Christine gives based upon how she feels. Generally, she's got a big heart. She gives based upon how she feels. I, on the other hand, give based upon what I think. I got that from my mother. It took a lot for me to break the mentality on my life. Get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. Save, save, save. But this is why we make such a wonderful team. You see, I give based upon what I think. I tend to reason more in my giving, which is good sometimes because otherwise Pastor Christine would just give everything away. 
And sometimes if there's not agreement, I say, babe, I can do it later, but I can't do it now. And these are the conversations that you have to have as a family. And I'm still going to be giving you the secret in a moment that really, that really freed us. You see, the Lord had to teach me that it doesn't need to make sense. It just needs to make faith. I'm that guy that had to learn. It doesn't need to make sense. It just needs to make faith. Think about it. Giving tithes and offerings in the church. How in the rational mind does that even begin to make sense to someone that does not understand the Lord? When I used to work at South African Airways, every month the guys used to sit down and work out their budgets to see what the best car was that they could afford. And our budgets were all open because we wanted to make sure one guy wasn't earning more than the other. We'd compete according to how much overtime we did. And I'll never forget, there was one guy that worked with me. His name was Jose Manuela Gubea Portela. I should have known then it was a sign that a lot of Portuguese people are going to be my friends. So his name was Jose Manuela Gouveia Portela, a very staunch Catholic. And he was sitting next to me the one day as I worked out our finances and my budget had the very first thing on the top was the tithe. Back then with overtime, four weekends, Sundays, double time, Saturdays, I would clear 927 rand. So the first thing on my budget was 927 tithe. He looked over and he says, tith. He says, what's a tith? I says, a tithe. He says, why is it so expensive? <laughs> I said, that's not something I sow. It's a, it's a debt I owe. That's God's portion of my income. He says, remind me never to go to your church. I never want to. I'm never coming. I'm never coming to your church. And he never did. No matter how many times I invited him, he wouldn't come, he wouldn't come to church. I shouldn't have revealed my budget. But anyway. Getting back, getting back to the point. So I was one of those people that had to learn it doesn't need to make sense. It just needs to make faith. And sometimes, if Pastor Christine wants to give and I can't see a way of how it's going to work, we discuss it and I say, babe, not now until we're in agreement. It's so important to be in agreement. You see, the Lord, the Lord strengthened us. He said, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. The two are in agreement. So now who wants to know the advice that we received from our counseling pastors as I begin to land this plane? <laughs> Aren't you glad? As I begin to land this plane, the landing gear's out. How many of you would like to know the counsel that I received that really blessed us and made us financially unified? And I know my pastoral friends that are here today applied the same principle. And it might be considered outdated, but I can promise you now it will eliminate almost 100% of the financial disunity that you have in your home. And that is simply this one bank account. One bank account, transparency, one bank account. Now you might say to me, you might be a lady sitting here tonight and saying, but listen, that's nice, Pastor Andre, but I earn three times more than my husband. I understand that and I'm grateful that the Lord has put you in that position, but don't think for one second that you are the provider of the home. Your role biblically in the eyes of God is to be a helpmeet. Your husband is the provider of the home. We have very dear friends in this congregation, actually, the wife earns so much more than the husband. I can't even tell you how much more. But if ever we go out for dinner and if ever we go somewhere, she'll tell me, she'll tell me, do me a favor. I know, I know that she's the one that earns a whole lot more. She'll say to me, listen, do me a favor. Won't you just thank my husband? Which I inevitably do. But she makes a point of directing me to thank who the provider is for that home. Now, I know many of you are looking at me shell-shocked. 
and thinking, but how's that going to work? Listen, the two shall become one flesh. Surely that should extend to one bank account. How can you become one in flesh and yet not one in financial covenant? How does that work, Pastor Andre? Simply, both salaries go into one account. I'm the provider of my home. Do you know as my wife sits there today, she does not know what the bank balance is in our account. And again, I'm not saying this is, bi- this is Bible. I'm saying this is what works for us. I know Pastor Johnny and Simone, they will attest. If I ask Pastor Johnny to share his testimony right now, he'll tell you their problems ended when they joined their bank accounts together before it was World War I. Now it's only World War Four. <laughs> But they'll tell you the same. You speak to Pastor Greg and Tracy, one bank account. And every mature, full-time minister of the gospel that I've ever spoken to, hand on heart, that is successful in ministry, will tell you whose marriage is strong has one bank account because if the two are called to be one flesh, surely they should be called to be one in finances. Now, you might say to me, Pastor Andre, you don't understand. (laughs) My husband, (laughs) he's a spendthrift. He doesn't even know how to. He doesn't even know how to control money. I don't have a problem who manages the finances. As long as the roles remain pure, who's the provider and who's the helpmeet? We live in a society today where most people both have jobs, the husband and the wife. And it's gone very quiet in here, but that's okay. You wanted to know what the secret was? I'm giving it to you now. You can't hold onto your finances. Just like you can't say, Lord, you can have everything. You can have my car, you can have my house, you can have my wife, you can have my kids, you can have my mother-in-law. But you can't touch my money. I want you involved in everything else but my bank account. How do you come into covenant with someone where you say, listen, we're going to spend the rest of our lives together till death do us part. I trust you with my life. I trust you with the future of our family. I trust you with the counsel that you're going to give me on my children's education. I trust you to provide for me. But I just don't trust you with my money sends a very strong message now for those of you seated here today and for those of you that are listening online it might take take some time to get to this point and that's okay but I want the overarching principle that I've dropped in your spirits here today to be these two examples and these two principles outlined in these scriptures number one it has to be blessed before it can multiply As a couple, you need to get to that point where you realize without the blessing of God, nothing else matters. It will be spent. And secondly, it has to be given away before it can be multiplied. Become that person that's generous. Become that family that's generous. And I'm asking you, please, with tears in my baby brown eyes, before you start sowing big seeds, even if you believe the Lord Jesus himself has appeared to you and done it, never do it independent of your covenant partner. The Lord will not hold you accountable if there is not agreement in your home. Yes, you should tithe, but you should not leave the weightier things of the law undone. That's what Jesus said. So if you are here this evening, and I want to close, and I want to pray with you. If you are here tonight as a couple, or an individual, but preferably if you're a couple, and you know that there's, you need to make progress as far as financial unity in your home is concerned, I want you to stand to your feet. I want to pray with you. This is going to take grace, especially if you've been married for 20 years and you've never operated this way before. But you know as well as I do, you know as well as I do that there have been so many money fights in your home, you almost can't take it anymore. There's just too many money fights in your home. 
and you want to make progress, I believe that God is going to pour out His grace upon your life. Now, you've got a choice tonight. Either you can take my counsel that will be confirmed by the likes of Pastor Johnny and Simone. I know Pastor Everett. I know Pastor Everett operates the same way. I know Pastor Chris operates the same way. And I know there are nuances. I know, for example, if you're a woman who has a company, I'm not expecting you to merge your company with your husband's personal bank account, although I would love that personally. If I was, if I was the husband, oh, I promise you, I would say amen, yes, all the way to the bank. But, but that's what I'm expecting. I'm talking about your personal finances, okay? I want to pray with you. The Bible says in the book of James chapter 1, I believe it's verse 21, if we with humility receive the ingrafted word of God, it is able to save our souls. If we receive the word with humility. So if you are here tonight and you're saying, Lord, I'm open to learn more. I thought I knew everything, but I'm open to learn more. And I want more than anything else. I want my home to be financially unified and play to each other's strengths. If your wife is the one that keeps accounts you see, I don't have, I've only got one fear. I know you shouldn't fear anything. I fear one thing and that's it. You want to know what it is? Debt. Personally, I fear. My mother feared debt until the day she died. Except my mom feared it so much that it caused onset Parkinson's. I don't fear debt. That, but I, I fear debt. I've got a healthy respect for provision. And maybe even if it just starts there, that's going to be my prayer for you today. That God give you such an inherent hatred for debt that you are so completely dissatisfied, that you become so frustrated when you go to the shops and your money for the month is spent and you're about to pass over your credit card in order to buy something that you have never needed, will never need, but your flesh just craves it. And that Sorry, I'm just looking at someone who's been guilty of that recently. Okay, this is not a word of the Lord for you. We were laughing about it the other day. This is my prayer, that when you hand over that credit card, it burns in your hand. And in that moment, you get a realization that if you continue living this way, guess what? You're never going to reach peace, achieve peace in your home. Is that okay? How many of you would like a holy dissatisfaction with debt? How many of you want to be free from the consumerism that has taken hold of people and societies and married couples? And you're saying enough is enough. I want to live within my means. Can I get an amen? If you want to live within your means and you want a holy dissatisfaction for debt, if you want a burning desire to clear debt that you've got right now and trust God to be able to pay that off, then you also stand to your feet. I believe the Lord's going to do something else right now as well. That's what we need. We need a holy dissatisfaction for debt, for expenditure, for consumerism. We need to live within our means. Amen. That's what we want and trusting God to do that. How many of you are ready to receive? Raise your hands towards heaven as I pray for you. My Father, you promised that you would accompany your word with signs following. It's taken me a long time tonight to get to this one point, but here is my prayer that every single person within the sound of my voice would wake up if not immediately right now, wake up in the morning with such a disdain for debt, for such a hatred, for purchasing things that they don't need, will never need, and that cannot contribute towards them and their contribution to your kingdom. That's my prayer tonight, Lord God, like you changed Saul overnight, that you would change the people in this place in Jesus' name. And as families, as husbands and wives, that together they would strengthen one another if one is tempted to go and make debt and the other spouse isn't, that they would be in financial unity and spare each other from the trouble that is to come. Father, at the same time, I pray for your grace upon those who are in financial covenant with you, tithers and givers, that you would increase their income in order to pay off their debt supernaturally in the name of Jesus. Father, I speak provision over their lives. I speak a 
abundance over their lives. I see bonds being canceled in the name of Jesus, but I know it's going to take diligence. You said he who saves money little by little makes it grow. Father, make them aware of the importance of saving, the miracle of compound interest, that they would never need to depend upon the world and become financially free. This is my prayer tonight in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Now, if you're a husband and wife, I want you to face each other and I want you to grab each other's hands and I want you to pray together. You can remain standing if you're not married and you can have a conversation with the Lord. But listen to me, married couples. I want you to take each other by the hand and I want you to prayerfully commit to starting to restructure your finances in a way that is pleasing to God. I want you to start your prayer by saying, Father, thank you for giving me a holy dissatisfaction for the debt that I'm currently in that you would help us not make any more and make wise financial decisions. As you pray this prayer, refer to the scripture and say, Lord, number one, I need to be in covenant with you, so I need you to bless what I have. And secondly, I will also become a person that gives freely instead of paying interest in Jesus' name. Take a moment just to say that prayer quickly. Do that now. Do that now. Thank you, praise and worship team. Set your fears aside as you pray. Set your fears aside. Father, throughout this week, I thank you that you continue to minister to these folks and to those people online. In Jesus' precious name, thank you for unifying families tonight regarding this issue. Thank you, Lord, we can enjoy extraordinary relationships as we are transparent and stick to the code of the word. In Jesus' name, you may be seated. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Please, nobody looking around at this point in time. If this is your first time at Christian Family Church this evening, you might have come expecting something completely different, and that's okay. But I still believe even though we dealt with, even though we dealt with extraordinary relationships and financial unity, that the Lord Jesus has ministered to you, and there's a tugging on your heart. So I'm not going to prolong this. I'm not going to come to where you are. And I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. But if you are here tonight and you want to surrender your life to Jesus, at the count of three, I want you to raise your hand and say, Pastor Andre, please pray for me. It doesn't help you've got your finances in order, but your soul and your spirit are out of fellowship with God. That's the first step. So while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, even to those of you watching online, at the count of three, I want you to raise your hand quickly, saying, Pastor Andre, pray with me. I need to be unified with God before I can be unified in any other area of my life. At the count of three, one, two, three. Right now, raise your hands. God bless you. I see those hands going up. Put them high in the air. Put them high in the air. Don't hold them half-mast. Say, Jesus, you died for me naked on a cross. I'm committing my life to you tonight. Raise your hand high in the air. I'm about to pray. Please, if there's a wrestling in your heart regarding this issue, that's the Lord knocking on the door of your heart. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus said this. Jesus himself said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. What door is that? That's the door of your spirit. Right now, Jesus is knocking on that door saying, let me in. He won't barge his way in there. 
The door has only one handle. That's on the inside. It's your responsibility to open it up and say, Jesus, come on in. And the moment you open that door, Jesus said, I promise you I will come in and have fellowship with you and you with me. So tonight, as these hands are raised, this is what's gonna take place right now. I'm gonna ask you please to pray this prayer after me. Everyone can pray, especially those of you that have your hands raised and those of you watching online. Every single person can pray this prayer after me, but especially if you raised your hand, let's pray this together and say, Heavenly Father, I come to you tonight as a sinner. I have missed your standard for my life. I have failed you day in and day out. But tonight, I know that there is hope and salvation in Jesus. You sent Jesus to die for me on the cross to pay for my sins so that I can be unified with you. Tonight I ask that you would forgive me, that you would cleanse me, that you would come into my heart and that you would save me. I promise to love you and to worship you until the day I meet you face to face. Thank you for joining us during this episode of Living Life with Dr. Theo and Bev Volmerantz. We hope that through this inspired teaching, you had an encounter with God. If you enjoy the teaching ministry of Apostle Theo and Dr. Bev Volmerantz and would like to enjoy more resources, we hope you will visit our website at www.christianfamilychurch.co.za or for our American listeners, www.christianfamilychurchsa.com. Thank you.